Hello, this is episode three of season four. Now, in this episode, I'll be talking with Sean Lockyer of Sean Lockyer Architects. We're diving into the role an architect can play in your renovation or building project and how to get the best from working with them. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building, or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Our Get It Right podcast partner for season four is Colourbond Steel and their mat range. So Colourbond Steel Matte is a great choice for creating a stunning, sophisticated and subtle look for your home in a material that is tested to withstand Australia's harsh conditions and be durable, long lasting and strong for your home. As you may know, Colourbond Steel has been around for over 50 years now. So quintessentially Australian, it's been used in all kinds of projects in locations all across Australia with its tried and tested performance and its enduring style. The Colourbond Steel matte range takes this to the next level. With five colours to choose from, the matte range was tested for 10 years before it was brought to market. Sophisticated and understated, it has this gorgeous luxe feel in a material that's seriously strong and durable. There are so many ways that you can use it in the walls and roof of your home, whether you're renovating or building, to create the design style that you're seeking. With a beautiful and neutral look, it has an elegance that I know that you'll love, and it diffuses light for a soft, natural, textured finish. And not only does Colourbond Steel Matte look gorgeous, being steel, it's also 100% recyclable, it's high-tech, it's tested and designed for the Australian climate, it's a choice for bushfire zones, it's able to give your home a contemporary and sophisticated feel, and it has 50 years of history behind it as a brand. It's just amazing. So head to www.colorbond.com forward slash undercover architect, and that's C-O-L-O-R-B-O-N-D.com forward slash undercover architect. There you can learn more about this great matte range. You can request samples, which I really encourage you to do, and you can get inspired for how you could use it in your reno or new home. And stay tuned across the season as I'll be sharing more ideas and info to help you see how it could work for your project. Now let's get on with the episode. So we're in for a treat this episode. This is the first interview in season four and it's with Sean Lockyer of Sean Lockyer Architects. Now, if you're based in Brizzy and, or Brisbane, sorry, and you're planning your renovation or your new home, chances are that you've already come across Sean's work. It's prolific, it's award-winning, and it's a huge body of new and renovated homes all over Brisbane. And in fact, in other parts of Queensland and Australia and even overseas, as Sean will talk about. Now, Sean Lockyer Architects, or SLA for short, has a huge following on social media, uh, massive Pinterest following, big Instagram following, has an enviable list of clients, of projects and awards, and a great reputation for beautiful, sustainable and efficient design solutions that add value to the lives of their inhabitants. Now, Sean himself, he has over 20 years of international design experience. Uh, It includes working for four years as an associate in a South African practice, and you may catch from Sean's accent where his uh, birthplace is. And he also had nine years as a director and partner at Arkfield, which is in Brisbane. 
uh, in Queensland. And in fact, that it's at Arkfield that Sean and I first met. Uh, it was back in 2001 <laughs> when uh, he and I started at Arkfield. To, uh, we were about two weeks apart in our starting dates. And we were both fairly new to Brisbane and we sat opposite each other. And as Sean reminded me the last time that I saw him, we actually had to be separated at one point like naughty school children because we spoke too much and we made far too much noise. Uh, So we've been friends ever since that time. Now, personally, I have watched with huge admiration and pride as my friend has built an extraordinary career with such commitment, incredible client service and sheer hard work. And in those early days when we were at Arkfield, he would talk ad infinitum about his love of designing individual homes. It's what was his passion. Uh, He loved the opportunity to work closely with clients in a really trusting and collaborative relationship. He loved the idea of crafting a container for their family lives and it actually being about their lifestyle and not about necessarily how the space looks. And he also loved this idea of exploring space and volume and light and materials that would surround them each day to just improve their everyday experience and really enhance it. And he's always been super passionate about residential architecture. Now, in 2009, he actually started his own practice, Sean Lockyer Architects, and this practice engages in the design and delivery of bespoke architectural homes for private clients who really value that collaborative and transparent design process. And each commission employs a versatility and a passion that transcends scale and budget. And when you hear Sean speak, I think you'll see some of this passion coming through. Now, the outcomes of all the work at, at, at SLA, they're reflective of the extraordinary efforts of a team. And that team's, of course, Sean. And then he's accompanied by Jen Nugline, Lucy Heineman, David Gockel, Michael Ford, Ash Hughes, Adam Lamming, Kevin Lee, Lyle Mitrovich, Katie Roberts, Alex Keane, and Ivy Vallat. So together, they've won a mountain of awards. Sean himself has been recognised for the contribution he's made to architectural education. And he's really committed to his role as an industry mentor as much as he is to his clients as their architect. It's with great pleasure that I sit down with Sean to talk about the role of the architect and his tips on how to get the most from working with one, plus answers to some of the key questions that we as architects often hear from homeowners about getting us involved. And Sean has some gold to share with you. We just, you know, went all over the place, dived really deep. He's got some fantastic advice for those of you who may not have been considering to use an architect because you just don't really know what they do, or you've been thinking about using one, but you want to learn more and about how to find one that's going to suit you. And if you hear Sean calling me Meals, well, that's my nickname. (laughs) This is about the who, the what, the when, and the why of using an architect for your renovation or building project. So let's get into the episode. Welcome, Sean. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Fantastic to be interviewed by you. So thanks for having me. <laughs> no, I'm re- I've been really looking forward to this conversation because as I explained in the intro, you and I have known each other for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had to laugh because the last time that you and I saw each other was actually at the National Architectural Conference down in Sydney. And I had forgotten that you and I got separated because we talked too much at Arkfield. <laughs> Hopefully you don't make the same mistake today. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I've been saying to Sean that um, my greatest concern with this interview is that he and I could probably sit here and talk for about four hours quite happily, but you would all get very bored. So, <laughs> Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> So, Sean, I've given uh, the audience a bit of a a background about who you are, your experience, and Sean Lockyer Architects and how it began. But can you just tell me a bit about who you are and about your business? 
Thanks, Amelia. Um, uh, my business, Sean Lockyer Architects, has been running for eight years. Um, I am a practice of 12 people, and we focus primarily on homes and uh, one-off uh, homes for uh, private clients. Overwhelmingly, most of our work is not commercial in nature. And while we certainly will look at other commissions, really our focus is on doing work where we believe we can add the most value through design and through uh, our experience and what we offer. And we, we do a range of work in a range of different places, starting from you know our smallest job has been a $40,000 extension on a deck on North Stradbroke Island to an $11 million house in Sydney and everything in between. Um, our value system is very much about quality of design and quality of experience and relationships with clients. We don't ever make a decision about taking on a job or not taking on a job on the basis of how big the budget is or how wealthy people are. Um, we decide to do work purely on the basis of having a strong relationship with a client where we genuinely feel like we can do the right thing by them and offer value through our service. And um, we currently do the bulk of our work in Queensland. Increasingly in northern New South Wales, we um, very fortunately um, uh, getting commissions and doing work there. We've obviously done a house in Sydney and uh, as far north as Cairns. And we're currently looking at work in Melbourne, Perth and fingers crossed Hawaii. Wow, with any of luck. that's exciting, isn't it? So because I know personally how hard you've worked to get the business to this point. It's been a career long journey, hasn't it? So it's really exciting to see Sean Lockyer's work and your team's work starting to show up in other places outside of Queensland. So I'm really excited about that future. Thanks. I mean, it's, it's enormously humbling um, to, be, to be, have experienced the coverage and the support, I guess, through both the media and, and obviously through clients um, and commissions over the years. And it's something that continues to humble us in terms of the support and the um, engagement people have had with our work. A lot of people mistakenly think it's sort of been an overnight success as they want, as they start to hear your name. And as I sort of frequently remind them, it's been a 24-year, 80-hour-a-week overnight success. So, um, you know, it, it, we, we would like to think it's a product of hard work and um, a lot of strategy in that as well, but overwhelmingly enormous amount of luck and an enormous amount of good faith and support from a group of extraordinary clients over the years. Yeah, fantastic. Now, if you haven't spotted, Sean has a bit of an accent. He's, he's <laughs> South African. <laughs> Ex-South African. <laughs> Can't seem to shake that accent. So, <laughs> Now, what would you say that the big difference is between architects, building designers and draftspeople? It's a bit of a contentious question. Yeah. And it is something that comes up for a lot of homeowners when they're thinking about who they're going to use to design their new home or their renovation. What would you say the diff main difference is? I think it's, it's probably important from my perspective to qualify the fact that there are extraordinarily accomplished building designers and there are extraordinarily bad architects. So I think, um, you know, as far as um, the name and terminology goes, I think while clearly there is an intended distinction and uh, certainly qualification, um, some of the most notable architects in history of not being formally qualified as architects. So I think um, it's important to kind of think about the capacity that somebody has to take on a job and offer a certain level of experience or skill or um, expertise on the work. In, in a generalist sense, I guess one would be reasonably expecting um, the difference between a good architect and perhaps a, a good uh, draftsperson or good building designer to be that I, th I think a good building designer or a good draftsperson will overwhelmingly take the uh, requirements that a client gives them 
and to the best of their ability, obviously, execute those in a reasonably linear fashion that sort of pretty much does exactly what the client asks of them. You know, in, in simple terms, we want an extra bedroom, we want an extra bathroom, we want to add it on the back of the house here. And while the person might give them a bit of input about how they do that, it's not uncommon for them to simply execute that task to you know, yeah. best of their ability in a professional way. I'd like to think that a good architect will take that same brief, but then they will question what other things may wish to come after, um, whether the bedroom is part of a finite plan um, as the kind of end of the road for the house, whether it's seen as one of many um, you know, future alterations, additions. And uh, certainly one of the first questions we would ask a client, irrespective of budget, irrespective of the home that they're living in, is what is the plan in the sort of 5, 10, 20 year landscape from a perspective of thinking not only about what their might their needs might immediately be but also what their needs might be in the longer term and then perhaps recognizing that if people sell homes as one of their biggest assets in their lives that they want to design a home that at least considers what the needs of other people might be in the future so that from a sustainability point of view the resources you're putting into uh, whatever work that you do be it a post box or be it a large extension that it considers a, a, a way of being that will add value to mm-hmm. not only the immediate inhabitants' lives but the people that follow. Yeah. And um, I think, uh, again, in a sort of general sense, you know, a building designer stroke, uh, drafts person, their input might overwhelmingly be quantitative, being it's about doing something that somebody's asked in a fairly, you know, pragmatic way that simply meets those needs, whereas an architect, a good architect, again, would hopefully qualitatively look to add not just the pragmatic kind of this bedroom, that bathroom, et cetera, but then adds a poetic element to it as well so that things like light quality, things like um, the experience of how space might be, the scale of a space, the, the way materials might change the perception of how space feels um, starts to weigh heavier in the decisions that they make and in the way that they might guide you to execute the design. You know, you and I have spoken before about the fact that there are people in all industries and the same happens with architecture and, de- and building design, that there, there are those that are great at what they do yeah, yeah. and those that are not so great but still get to hang a shingle and charge people money and still manage to secure jobs. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that your description of what I see are the key differences. I think often we um, hear our industry say, well, architects go to university for longer and they've got more legal hoops to jump through and all of those things are true. Yeah, yeah. But I think that there's a big difference in the way that we're trained and um, that then results in a different approach to designing a home. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it's great to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and I certainly concur with um, your thinking around that. I think that's great. So thank you. Okay, so this this may sound like a really big question, Sean, but what does an architect, you know, actually do? What should you expect in working with an architect and what can a homeowner, you know, come to anticipate in their working relationship of choosing an architect to work with for their renovation or new home? It's certainly a very, very good and very, very topical question. I think increasingly, um, you know, we, we find obviously as as we become better known and our work becomes better known, increasingly more people come to us with a greater understanding of what it is that we do. So some of that hard work is already done. That's fantastic. Um, which is, you know, a, a privilege and I, I guess, you know, we're very grateful of how that sort of plays out. I think um, it's not uncommon for people to have not never built before. Um, I think you would experience this very much in, in the work that you do is that people are overwhelmed by the sense of 
overwhelmingly a lot of bad news that they mm. hear, overwhelmingly nightmare stories about budget overruns and time overruns and um, lack of control, perhaps. Um, so I, I think from our perspective, again, talking about what we believe is best practice as architects, what we want to try and offer is a control and a sort of management of the entire process of seeing, in the case of a house, a home built meaning that we don't just draw plans. People come to us and they go, if somebody asks us, what does it cost to draw plans? We go, well, that's kind of not what we do. That's a part of what we do. But perhaps more importantly, drawings are means to an end. They're there to uh, tell a builder ultimately what it is that needs to be built. So our job is to understand the brief very clearly from a client at the outset before they spend any money, be very clear with them about expectation, about cost, about time. And we would always encourage people to be conservative with these things, knowing um, how in the passage of time things only tend to move in one direction. <laughs> and then what we want to try and do is take that brief and very, very thoroughly interrogate it at a conceptual level to confirm that all of the expectations in terms of time, cost, pragmatics of what they're going to accomplish are going to be achieved. Um, and then from that point, we we believe that we should get all the correct kind of consultants in, involved in the project at an early stage to effectively de-risk the whole project so that um, concerns about planning, about um, building code issues, um, bushfire if it's relevant in acreage, um, might be hydraulics, um, civil engineering, that we get all of the expertise that's needed. We manage and liaise all of that. And in our case, we insulate the clients from all of that white noise so that we do it and they don't even have to know about it. And then we increasingly get into the, the meat of the design being, you know, more and more the nuts and bolts down to kitchen cabinets and things. Um, and again, as a good architect, we believe the service should only ever be a complete one where we will manage not only the house, but the hard landscape, the fencing, the boundary conditions, retaining walls, swimming pool design, um, and really think of creating an idea for total environment for the clients as opposed to just designing a house that's plonked in the middle of the land. Yeah. Um, and then through that process, we obviously engage with builders. Um, we would uh, organize all of the tendering and cost uh, certainty that's required and obviously organize contracts at the correct point, organize a contract signing. In our case, we frequently get involved with um, bank valuations and even down to kind of supporting the clients and securing bank finance and stuff. That's incredibly holistic, the drawings. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um, because particularly at the top end of the market, understandably, there's significant investments going into mm. people's property. And both with our experience and with our brand, what we want to do is to leverage those things to support the client to get the benefits of everything that we've learned and done so that their project can be as seamless and uh, and effectively the value add can be as great as possible. And and then clearly when one gets onto site, overwhelmingly we would be part of the process of, we, we don't like to use the term managing the builder or um, you know watching or nursemaiding the builder because that's simply not our experience of it. Our experience is to work collaboratively with the right builders and you only ever want the right builder. Mm -hmm to then work as a collaborative, supportive team with the clients um, to ultimately realize the project through to completion, at which point we will defect the project, make sure that everything has been executed in accordance with the drawings, in accordance with the approvals, the expectations of the client, and then ultimately hand over a house that is in showroom quality with preferably a ribbon tied around the front door handle <laughs> and a box of chocolates yeah. on the kitchen table. And a doormat. And, and a doormat, yeah, <laughs> welcome home. Um, but but uh, uh, in, in all seriousness, I think what... 
again in our in, in our um, market, which we recognise is is um, at the top end of you know the market. I don't think there's any debate about that. What our clients are expecting of us is to use our expertise, our expertise, knowledge, and experience to really insulate them from white noise, let them touch the project in a way that's meaningful and rewarding and creative and fun for them, and then we deal with everything else. Yeah. Well, I think that um, I know that you made a, bi- a business decision early that you wanted to say, may only take on projects that you would see right to through the yeah. completion. And yeah. and I think it's worth remembering um, for uh, for homeowners that often when you're looking for a designer, the first thing that they'll do is, you know, you guys will, will type in an architect's name or you'll type in certain types of designers' names and you'll look at the finished homes. So, mm. and then that be a testament to whether you want to get in touch with them or not. And I know you, Sean, you know, in making that decision that you would only see th- projects through to completion, you have ensured that the work that you do at the beginning actually gets seen through the whole way as because correct. the home is kind yeah. of your business card, really, isn't yeah, it? So, correct. And I think that um, there, it's worth understanding that, you know, there are architects that are like um, Sean Lockyer Architects that will take that project the whole way through and, as Sean says, totally manage and mitigate your risk by having the right professional in the right place at the right time making the mm. right decisions. And and then there are also other architects who are willing to take on just the design component and then send you on your way or to um, do the design component and then be available on an hourly rate during construction and those yep. types of things. So it's really up to you as to what you think is going to be the support that you need. I know I personally have had clients that are really, they want to be super involved in the project. And I know that as I was having babies and those types of things, I couldn't be on site on a weekly basis. So um, for me to do the design and make sure they got the design right and then... um, be available on an hourly rate for them to check in and get advice as they move through the project with other people and they were running the whole thing, worked for them. I think you can see that there's different ways of working with architects and the main thing I think to understand is that they just really will add that level of professional expertise and experience Mm -hmm. because it's not just your home that they've seen. They've seen home after home after yeah. site after yeah. site after yeah. problem after problem and found solutions for them along the way. And you get to draw on all those years of experience to inform and simplify your process. So um, I think it's fantastic because what you've described in terms of that whole picture hmm. is actually a big source of confusion for lots of people. They don't understand why architects' fees look like so much money. They yeah, don't understand yeah. why it gets structured the way that it does. Um, and they don't, they don't, they can't see the value. But I think when you explain it like that, you can actually see, well, there's a chance there that I could actually just sit back and I could trust the people who know what they're doing. I get the yeah. right team together, trust the people who know what they're doing to take care of this for me and make sure that I get what I'm paying for, what I dreamed of and what I the home that I actually am desiring at the very end of it. So, yeah. And I think then you can start to actually see the value in the fees that you pay. And I, I, th- I think also a, a way that I've often come to try and explain the process to clients recognizing that, um, and, and again, this is without any form of judgment, is that the overwhelming uh, proportion of homes that are built in Australia through the sort of project home market or the kind of turnkey operation, which offer extraordinary value um, to the clients doing that um, kind of work, recognizing that not everybody can afford an architect or a bespoke home. But it's essentially, what I think we encourage people to think about is that it's not just that you're building a home with an architect or that you're building a one-off home. It is that you are 
going through a completely different process to achieve a built outcome. And the process that we would promote is one of making conscious decisions about everything. Mm. Um, when one takes the sometimes necessary um, route of getting very simple drawings with very basic information, a, a competent builder will still make the home complete. Mm. You know, it will keep water out and it will comply with the codes. You know, it will overwhelmingly meet all your you know expectations and things like that. I guess what what we're striving for with our clients, recognizing that you know it's a, a high level of finish and service and all these things, is something that surpasses their wildest expectations. Mm. Um, if we met the expectations of a client, we would consider the job a failure. Mm-hmm. We we want to exceed the expectations of a client from a perspective of the poetics and the experience of living in the home. And that may sound esoteric, but essentially what we fundamentally believe in after um, 20 odd years of doing this is that we think if the process of designing, if the process of procuring, the process of making is one of joy, of Hmm. support, of togetherness, of, of collaboration, that manifests in the home. And ultimately, as opposed to just having things that is bricks and mortar, irrespective of how perfect or not it might be, the experience of getting there is something that is resonant in the client's experience of being in that home. And after, again, after 20 years of doing this, um, of after having done something like 4,000 apartments, and I'm going to say somewhere around 200 houses, um, we've never once finished a project where we're not friends with the clients, yeah. not once ever, which if we're proud of one thing, that is something that stands above everything else because that relationship and that trust that is imp- that is given to us in building their home is something that we hold so precious and so dear that for us that is the thing that we want to honor. And as I- ironic as it may sound, the home itself is almost secondary to the relationship and the quality of that experience of making it because people will buy and sell homes, mm. but the relationship and the experience of making that home is something that will endure and, and move way beyond even the home itself. Yeah, I think you can hear how passionately Sean's talking about what he does and and the work that he does with clients. And I think that if you can take anything away from this, this is what you should expect from the people that you work with, okay? And nothing less, all right? I want you to demand this from the people that you work with and to keep looking for it until you find it because it can be like this. Sean and his clients and his team are testament to the fact that it can. It doesn't always have to be for a high-end home. You know, you you can demand better from the people that you're working with and ask them to step up and provide you an awesome service, okay? And this is how we change the industry overall. So, I'm, you know, I love hearing, Sean, you talk about the way that you work like this. So No, thank you very much. Now, one of the big hesitations around using architects is that they will just always design something that's over your budget. You know, yeah. they actually, I hear that from homeowners that they believe that architects actually live to blow your budget. They live to design something that's only what they want to design. They live to design something that's award winning. They don't really care too much about what you've, you know, your needs are. Um, they only want to design complex buildings. They don't want to do simple stuff. I know that you do high-end work now, but there yeah, was a time yeah. where you didn't. There was a time where you did do much more economic projects and you've built yeah. the business just through sheer reputation and skill to where you are now that you do work with these high-end clients. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this idea that architects, um, working with an architect will just blow your budget and that's that's the result that you'll get? I think um, you're certainly correct in that that is overwhelmingly the um, uh, expectation um, experience, um, you know, hearsay in the industry. And unfortunately, probably is overwhelmingly the reality. 
I think um, one's got to sort of unpick uh, the, the question to a certain extent because I think where overwhelmingly in our experience the bulk of all the problems start is unrealistic expectation and guidance by the expectation initially by clients through no fault of their own and then through poor guidance by architects, building designers, draftspeople, etc., from a perspective of them not understanding completely enough themselves about what is involved, everything that's involved to guide a client responsibly to get to the right outcome. Now, where we uh, feel we're a little bit different, and again, talking kind of from a, we believe, a best practice perspective, is I've taken an extraordinary amount of time and effort over the last, particularly over the last decade, to record every dollar of every project that we've ever built. Not only do we record the dollar, we interrogate the builder at the end of the job to understand if they could build it again for the same money, if they lost money, where they lost money, how they lost money, whether it was a function of poor documentation, um, information they missed at tendering, client changes that they didn't manage, et cetera, et cetera, that we can try and present to a potential client a, a complete set of data that very robustly explains to them what is genuinely involved to get to the end of one of these projects. I think a lot of people focus on signing fee proposals and signing building contracts with the best of intentions, but with their head half in the sand about everything else that has to come that they simply have either omitted to tell the client or they simply don't know, um, which in my opinion is equally negligent mm. um, by a person. Um, so what we do, and I, again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we're perfect because it's an organic process and it's a process where one is trying to quantify something that is bespoke and yeah, one off, really, and, and it's it? in yeah. the imagination yeah. of we're, we're trying to sit down with a client at the beginning of something where they have an image in their head, where mm. we have an image of their image of their <laughs> in their head. It's all interpretation, and, isn't and, it? Yeah, yeah and, and, and so what we try to do is uh, I, I refer very heavily back to the sort of laws of averages and stuff. And when we look at the data through our project, there's an enormously high degree of consistency um, in the pricing and the advice that we give clients. And then we've got to steer them robustly. And that is the hardest part. The mm. toughest part in every one of these projects is having that hard discussion with the client at the very real risk of losing the commission yes. because they fear that you're expensive. And yes. I mean, that that perception, um, I, I would suspect, is often um, thought of us, whether yes. people say it to us or not. Yeah, They'll say we're expensive. They'll say what we do is expensive. And we would say that that is just grossly inaccurate because mm -hmm. what we are is upfront and we're honest. Yeah. And we will not sign a fee proposal unless I, with my hand and my heart, can to the greatest extent possible guarantee to that client that we can deliver on what it is that we're going to talk about. So yeah. we ask them about whether they want two and a half kilowatts of solar power or five kilowatts. Are they connected to batteries? Are there water tanks? Are the water tanks, is um, are they connected to toilets? Are they connected to... Yeah, you know, level of detail. Every, everything. Yeah. I mean, is there are there bushfire issues? Yes. Are they looking at double glazing? Have they got climatic demands on the house that um, create certain things? If they show us pictures of concrete, we know that costs more than timber. If they show us pictures of green roofs on top of houses, clearly that's more expensive than color bond yep. roof sheeting. And one needs to, to take the time and be generous with your time at the outset of the project to not only understand more completely what the clients want and what their expectations are, but to also foster a relationship of openness, transparency, clarity to the clients so that by the time you actually sign the fee proposal, um, if that's you know the first milestone in this whole process, that the clients have a genuine understanding not only of the process 
but of your own value system in trying to support them to make decisions that will support their own aspirations. And if you don't take the time to do that, if not enough questions are asked, then all your fears will be realized. Everything that you worry about (laughs) will happen and the costs will blow out every single time. And I think the, the, the other part of that is there, there are two components to costs exceeding people's expectations. The one is where inadequate guidance is given yes. and um, you could simply never realize it before you started. And then the other part, and this is where clients do need to take accountability and consultants need to responsibly deal with it, is clients changing the brief yes. and the agenda. And and we find um, that, again, is one of the hardest conversations is as clients stick up their hand and ask for more things, at the point that that happens, you have to responsibly say to them, look, this is not within our expectations. This is not within your current budget allowances, et cetera. We need to make provision for that. It will have an impact on the work we do. That is a flow onto the fees. And you need to update them in such a way that they can make an informed decision before they get yeah, at painted that point. into the corner at that yeah, point. And yeah. that, that is the, that's the toughest part of the job. It um, is. It's, and I think that that's what a lot of um, designers and architects struggle with is that saying, look, um, you know, this is what that looks like. Do you really want to make that choice now? Whereas they'll just kind of bumble along and keep designing and then it's only when they've got too far down the track and they have to sort of bring the client back to that point and remind them that that was a change and it just gets so grey and murky yeah. that it's, you know, it's so challenging for a client to feel, I suppose, carefully chaperoned through that process and, and you can understand why they get frustrated that um, it seems like a surprise that things have been going over budget. And I do, I get, homeowners telling me that we've been asking our designer over and over again, are we on budget? Are we on budget? But I think that, you know, that what you spoke of earlier about just not having necessarily the experience to know um, that, that you have the information to be able to actually give proper advice around costs and things like that can be very tricky for a lot of designers as well. So Absolutely. And I, I think where perhaps the industry needs to stick up their hand and take uh, accountability for that industry because I think a lot of people are very quick to blame clients about everything. But part of our responsibility is to support clients, whether they experienced or inexperienced, in the process of doing this to alert them to the pitfalls, to give them constraints that make them feel safe, um, to give them targets that are achievable, and you know be robust in your own understanding of what is happening in the market and then be robust in communicating that to clients and i think if you let things go if you rely too much on optimism or dare i say you know quite often uh, architects might be guilty of thinking that they're so intelligent that they can solve problems that <laughs> are unsolvable and 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 you know if you've got an iq of 170 a brick still costs the same price <laughs> as a brick for a person that has an iq of 85 <laughs> So it doesn't matter how smart you are. There are some things that are outside of your control in terms yes. of cost. So it's about understanding what things you can control, what things you can't, and just you know being very, very clear in that understanding. And, and we find if those conversations are held regularly and they're boring conversations and they're horrible conversations, but they're important conversations, if those conversations are held regularly, clients ultimately will know what their capacity is. They will know where the th- thresholds in terms of finance and costs and stuff are for them. And they will make informed decisions about how they spend their own money yeah. as opposed to the tra- traditional model of the architect bullying them into doing things they don't want to do that cost more than they have been wanting to spend for an outcome that they're not happy with and a process that doesn't support anything that they wanted to do. You know, And once again, the risk of self-promotion, 
the, the, the overwhelming amount of effort we put into our job is supporting the clients through that process because that is the hardest part of every job, whether a client has $10 to spend or whether they've got $10 million to spend. Okay. So in terms of um, people actually going about finding an architect, because I think, you know, I know that uh, you listening will be thinking, oh my gosh, that, you know, that sounds amazing. If I could find an architect that would work with me that way, I, you know, I could actually think about using an architect and that may be potentially what you're thinking, but there's probably also a fear that there are lots of architects out there that don't work that way. And there's lots of building designers and drafts people as well. So, um, how do you recommend people actually find an architect and 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 um, and speak to them for that first time and what they need to bring to that first meeting? I think one of the problems that we can see is that, and I know from my experience of going to that first meeting on site, people are kind of mining you for information and advice rather than remembering that they actually need to be interviewing you as somebody that they want yeah. to work with long term, yeah. you know? So they're yeah. sort of asking for your feedback about the house and forgetting and forgetting to uh, question you about how you work and what kind of work you do and those types of things. So firstly, how do you recommend people find an architect? And then how do you recommend they, you know, deal with them in that first meeting, what they do to prepare for it and and, um, and really get the best outcome from that first meeting? I, I certainly think um, in choosing an architect, and it's probably, you know, not dissimilar to choosing um, accountant, lawyer, um, doctor even, um, there are a whole lot of technical expertise and professional um, services that one expects of them, but one would expect that the person you're engaging knows more about the topic than you know. I mean, that goes without saying. And you would reasonably expect that, irrespective of their personality, that they have a high degree of competence to um, execute the job. Now, clearly, you want to take the time whether it's through testimonial, referral, um, looking at their work, even asking to look at their drawings, talking to builders to kind of cement your understanding of their technical capabilities. But then I think beyond all of that, perhaps in equal importance, is to find somebody who you trust. Um, I think one of the things that I continue to find you know, quite a challenge in terms of communicating what we do for clients um, is that so much of what we're trying to do is about trying to do as much as we possibly can, not as little as we possibly can. And I think, you know, there's some services that are being offered and, you know, again, there may, there may be a reasonably linear relationship between cost of fees and level of service. Again, you know, it would be reasonable to expect that. But I think you want to find somebody who you fundamentally trust so that when and if you get to points of uncertainty in the project or anxiety or um, even fear in a project that you can go to bed at night going, I don't understand this. I'm worried about this. I'm stressed about this, but I believe that this guy has my back. Mm. I genuinely feel that while I'm sleeping, this guy is awake at night. This guy or girl is awake at night thinking about, caring about what we've asked them to do for Mm. us. That's a good illustration, actually, because I know yeah, I'm often standing in the shower thinking about a client's yeah. project and going oh, to sleep at night thinking about a client's project. And, no, it's yeah. extraordinary. And, and, yeah. and I, I think I don't think every client, I mean, I think all of our clients by the end know it, but I don't think a lot of people realize how much thought goes into the stuff that is outside of the lines on paper. And I think great architects, great designers, great building designers um, care about the job way beyond what they contracted to do. And what we would say to clients is that when you're sitting across the table from whoever it is that you're looking at engaging, 
you want to clearly have an understanding about their architectural skills. I would strongly recommend you look at their folio. I would very strongly recommend that you talk to past clients and not just the three that they give you the names <laughs> of that are their uncle and their best friend and their you know, second cousin. Um, we, we say to clients, go to our website. There are 50 projects on there. Pick a name. Pick a project. We'll give you yep. the phone number now. You can phone them. You know, we, Yes, we give them testimonials. Talk to the builders. Um, talk to not just one, talk to three builders. That's talk a great suggestion, builders, isn't it? Because you know? a good a good designer will have had a great relationship with the builder as yeah. well and the builder will be able to give you really honest feedback about what that process was like. Well, what we so. always think is telling is that there are a lot of highly, highly accomplished architects who builders will never, ever work for again. Mm. Um, again, and I am guilty of self-promotion at this level, is that <laughs> um, one of our builders has built 26 houses for us yeah. and they have 10 more um contracted or in the process of contracting ready to go. Yeah. Um, we have not once ever built a house for a builder that doesn't want to build another house for us. Mm. Um, and th- again, so that starts to talk about people's value systems. So I think that's a, a big deal. And then I think also, you know, when people, when architects are considering, uh, sorry, when clients are considering an architect, a lot of clients will talk about the style of their home. And clearly it's important to have somebody that can reconcile your aesthetic aspirations with the home that you want. But I would strongly encourage clients to think more about how they want to live rather than how they want something to look. Mm. And I think finding a person that is interested in their well-being, that is interested in the relationships that they have with their family, how they want to engage in a home rather than an architect that is preoccupied with aesthetics mm. um, is a really important thing. Advice, and yeah. what what is interesting, and this may seem like semantics, is that a lot of people will come to us and they'll go, oh, you're a contemporary architect or it's modern or it's this or it's that. And, you know, what style will our house be and stuff? And and I say, well, look, your home, I mean, it's, it sounds like a sales line. I just say your home will be about lifestyle. Mm. It'll be about trying to reconcile how you want to feel in a space, how you want to engage with a space or a space beyond the, the room itself. And then architecture, good architecture in the sort of modern school of form follows function is an expression of experience. Mm. Like if if you if you talk about a house having to look a certain way and then trying to hope it feels a certain way, it's a bit like choosing a car before deciding where it is the car needs to drive. Now clearly if you buy a four wheel drive and you want to go Grand Prix racing, you know, you're not <laughs> going to get the right outcome. And and again, you know, an architect's the same thing. So you want to choose somebody that I think can reconcile those, those things um and you want it to be somebody that you can trust at the end of the day. Um I I think, you know, when people think about cost of architect and think about fees. You know, if you choosing an architect basis um, purely on the basis of fees, I think you need to really interrogate what it is they're doing for those fees, and look at that as an overall proportion of the total investment in your property. You know, and once again, I mean, our, our, our fees are commensurate with people doing similar kind of work to us. We'd like to think that we offer better value in terms of the level of service we offer for that money. But I think when people phone up an architect and go, what are your fees? And they phone up another guy, what are your fees? They really do need to interrogate what that covers, what they do, the level that they go beyond what they paid for to do. Because overwhelmingly, the best work that an architect will do will be stuff that the client may not even ever know about. Mm. And there's so much invisible stuff that happens on a great project that the clients need never know about, but that a good architect will do anyway. And yeah. that's the stuff that is so unquantifiable at the beginning of the process that you will do yourself the greatest disservice by not at least taking the time to try and understand it. 
So you did touch on fees yeah. and, and that is a, it's a, a big um, issue for, I think, a lot of people when they're thinking, I, I have people say to me, I just can't afford an architect or, yeah. um, can you talk me through how uh, architects generally structure their fees, yep. how you structure yep. your fees yep. and, um, and how that process works for the client overall? Um, look, uh, again, overwhelmingly, um, you know, like I said earlier, I think fee- fees will have a reasonable, reasonably linear relationship between level of service. Um, I think when people expect to, you know, for argument's sake, build a million-dollar home or $2 million home or whatever cost of home, and they phone up somebody and somebody wants to charge them $5,000 to do the drawings, um, if people haven't interrogated what other options are available to them, they might be forgiven for thinking, oh, that's all it takes. And, you know, they get six drawings and then they spend the next three years of their lives, you know, getting divorced and wanting to kill themselves. <laughs> um, but what, what, what we are, or what we're trying to um, promote That's through, super extreme. Yeah. <laughs> that's extreme. Divorce <laughs> <laughs> in grand designs. Um, but, I mean, ultimately what we would encourage people to do is to, to, first of all, try and find a service that meets their actual need. Now, clearly you know, there's a range of services involved. I think if one is talking about a complete service with uh, an architect of sort of commensurate kind of uh, skills, it's not in, uh, not uncommon for most architects to charge on a basis of percentage of construction cost. Um, a lot of architects will charge fixed fees um, for fixed scope, but then clearly one's got to understand the mechanisms for understanding if you change your scope and brief how one might adjust fees and things like that. From our our perspective, we overwhelmingly work on a percentage of construction cost. And I would say without being able to cover every eventuality, I would say that most, um, I would say most high quality architects doing a full service might charge somewhere in the order of probably somewhere between seven and 12% as a range um, for the design documentation overseeing the project through and up until construction. And then depending on the nature of the architect's structure of their fee proposal, um, some architects will charge a higher percentage of which the administration on site will form a part of. Um, so by administration, you mean overseeing it, uh, meeting with the builder. And, and working yep. with the builder and um, you know, uh, coordinating that part of the service the when the, the build builder is calls. actually on yeah. site. And um, I mean, we overwhelmingly charge a percentage um, up until the point of construction, which covers everything that we do up until that point. And then when we get to site, we t- tend to charge a retainer on a monthly basis for the duration of the build, which okay. is a fixed amount. Yep. And um, the reason why we charge a fixed amount um, uh, rather than sort of scaling it up and down as the demands of your time change on site is rather than hypothetically charging $1,000 a month at month one and you know $10,000 at month or halfway through the project, we just even it out so that it's... Um, they can manage their cash flow. Correct. So yeah. it's just easier for clients to manage their cash flow. Now, overwhelmingly, we find that particularly on the site services of a job, clients battle to understand if you're a good architect, if you've done good drawings and done a good builder, why do we need the architect on site? You know, isn't it just straightforward? Don't they just build a house? And they go, well, yes, they do just build a house. And overwhelmingly, a good builder will build a very good house. Um, and if the documents are good, you know, you should be fine. You should be right. But... Um, you know, at, at the risk of anecdote again, um, you know, we, we often liken building a home to, you know, cooking. 
And if you got Gordon Ramsay to write a recipe and you got him to put all the ingredients in your kitchen and you set about cooking Gordon Ramsay's meal, you may not get it. <laughs> um, and it would help to have Gordon Ramsay there suggesting how much you need to stir the butter and whether you're burning it or not. And d- designing a house, it's kind of in those sort of uh, those more refined and sometimes more subtle relationships between materials um, changes that might happen, albeit subtle changes that happen on site. Having the person that spent, you know, six months of their life um, to to see those things through, they understand the cause and effect of how one decision impacts on another decision, another decision. And again, it sort of comes back to that uh, idea of understanding what it is that you're paying for, what you're going to get for yeah. your money. And how much um, you want to sort of actually relinquish correct. control, time, that's, stress, risk, all those kinds of things. That's exactly you know, correct. So. And, and, and I think picking up on what you said earlier, um, I, I don't want people to think that in the process that we're talking about that we're disengaging clients or that we're saying, clients, look, you do nothing. Um, every client will bring their own personality and their expectations, skill set even. I mean, we've had some clients with extraordinary design um, understanding and capacity. Um, every client will, will and should still bring all of those things to the project. I guess we're just trying to distinguish between clients trying to do the work that they're not skilled to do versus employing somebody to do the work that they are skilled to do. Yeah. And ultimately, if that's managed well, then they get value out of the process and the process is a pleasure. Yeah. And it's a time-consuming process too. I think, you know, if you've got a day job, you've got a family, you've got, you know, life to keep going on whilst you're renovating or building your home – um, that having a professional in your corner taking care and just removing the headaches for you um, can sometimes be worth more for your sleep at night, yeah. um, fee-wise. Um, and I often say to people, you know, when you're juggling this whole DIY versus outsourcing, you've really got to be honest about your capacity to be the one um, responding to building you know, site queries and yeah. being able to be on site. You know, if a builder calls, if you've hired an architect or any designer to see you all the way through construction, they'll be the one that the builder calls and then they'll have to figure out how they get on site urgently enough for to answer and respond to the yeah. builder's questions. And that's not anything then that you as a homeowner need to worry about. And often, you know, I know that when I used to see projects the whole way through, yeah, it'd be, you know, after the whole event had been dealt with, sorted, we've come up with a solution, we've kept things moving, that you'd call the client and say, by the way, this happened, but we've resolved it this way, you know, um, there's no extra cost, you know, all those kinds of things, and and they've not had to be troubled with that at all. No, that's exactly correct, and I think, um, I I mentioned it earlier, I mean, I think there's so many things, particularly on a high-end project, that happen that clients just don't need to know about in you getting the best possible outcome for them. Um, There there was a project that we did in um, Hamilton, admittedly a very significant project um, a number of years ago, where we I remember at the end of the job uh, counting uh, the hours up that we had worked, and we were just shy of 6,000 man hours on a project which, uh, you know, in terms of doing the maths, is the equivalent of one person sitting at their desk for 10 hours a day for three and a half years. Yeah, yeah. And when I tell people that, they just can't believe that yeah. that's what happened. Yeah. But the thing is, is you know, there's there's that 80-20 rule, and you can get to 80% reasonably easily. But in the last 20%, there's also the 80% rule where you spend 80% of the effort to try and get that last yeah. 20% right. And again, this just comes back to what it is that you want. And I don't want people to think that, all of the time and effort and energy that I'm talking about refers only to, you know, 
people building palaces on top of the hill in these mega multi-million dollar homes. The logic and the value system and the importance of small things is exponentially more important the smaller your budget is because yeah. the smaller the budget, the more meaningful little things will become. Mm. And what we would say is that um, you know if you if you have a smaller budget, clearly there are going to be greater pressures on the impact or proportion of consultants' fees and all those sorts of things. But it just comes back to what your value system is. And if your value system is about quality and about experience and about uh, you know a, a poetic idea that you want to engage with, well, then try and focus on that as the agenda rather than just all the pragmatic things, which in the fullness of time we think will offer less value than something that um, you know, has a sense of joy or purpose about it. Okay, so you've spoken about that first meeting and you know, looking at folios, speaking to builders, those types of things. What can the homeowner do to really prepare themselves for that meeting? I mean, I have, I know homeowners who go to their first meeting with their designer, having tried to solve the problems themselves. Yeah. Um, they've tried to do drawings themselves. Um, they'll have scrapbooks. They'll have very detailed briefs. Some will have absolutely nothing. Um, I often say that the best brief actually tells a story about how you want to live in this home, yep, yep. and you've touched on that as well. Um, what do you suggest that homeowners do to uh, prepare for that first meeting and to arrive at that first meeting with their designer and architect to really get to the nitty-gritty very quickly about whether this is going to be the right person for you? The um, it's It's been really interesting over the years actually seeing what people think is important to bring to the meeting because overwhelmingly I would say a lot of people um, certainly come to the meetings that we have with them in a lot of cases kind of you know in a general sense kind of having thought about the project but not necessarily in a detailed sense. Um, It's certainly a good idea to spend some time um, really trying to come to to terms with the accommodation that you want in the project clearly you know how many bedrooms how many bathrooms um, living spaces all those sorts of things um, we would strongly encourage you to really try and drill down into why you want all those spaces and relationships between those spaces and and what that starts to talk to perhaps more importantly or equally important to just the number of rooms and stuff is how one wants to be in that space so I, I received recently arguably one of the most beautifully written briefs for all a project that we are looking at in Narrabri, um, which is you know wow. an area which is you know traditionally probably not an area where a lot of architects would have travelled to do. To <laughs> um, but I mean, it looks like a gorgeous site, really, really fantastic people, and they wrote a four or five page brief that spoke about how they came, how they had come to live in Narrabri, why they lived in Narrabri, oh, where they'd grown up, where they what they had studied, how old their kids were, the relationship they have um, as a couple. How the things that they like to do would be reading books or kicking a soccer ball or sitting around a swimming pool um, with friends, having a barbecue, whatever. And again, that talks more to the idea of what an architect might do as opposed to what the idea of, again, in simple terms, what a building designer might do where you go, well, this is how many rooms you want, can you put them together? Because what that brief starts to do is it lets, certainly in my case, me understand qualitatively about what those people want out of their lives because if I understand the reason why something is then it is there's a greater likelihood that I can realize um, that idea or that thing that is important to them but then equally it it gives me information as to what extent I can or should challenge some of those things yeah yeah because sometimes people come to you with an idea of 
how they want to do something through preconception, good or bad. Um, some people come to you with an understanding of wanting to do something because they've seen a picture of it. Um, they might have experienced it on holiday, etc. And for me, I think the greater um, the greater energy and effort that can be put into trying to describe how people want to be in a place, the greater the likelihood is you can design a house that will transcend all of the pragmatic things. Um, it goes without saying that in the act of doing that, clearly clients should come to you with an idea of what they're hoping to spend because the biggest challenge will be reconciling brief and budget. Mm-hmm. Um, an understanding or you know questions about timing, which hopefully the architect or designer would solicit in any event, so that you can really start to create a mud map for them at the end of that meeting about time, money, process, um, relationships, all those sorts of things. And um, I think if one can demystify the process, and um, you know, we would certainly do our best to try and do that in one, if not two meetings. If you can demystify the process and try and give people some very clear kind of cause and effect um, information, then they can go away and really try and process that, and then come back to you either with a refined idea of their brief, or we often quite we will quite often write reverse briefs to the clients to try and capture what it is that they've told us. And in the process of doing that, a great client, in our opinion, will remain open to the fact that the guidance that you're giving them is for their own well-being as opposed to your own agenda to kind of increase the fee or make yeah. the house bigger than it needs yeah. to be or whatever. I mean, we, we, contrary to popular belief, we actually try and make clients build houses smaller than they want to build. <laughs> but um, well, we, I think we failed miserably in that regard. <laughs> I think houses are getting very, very big these days. Yeah. But um, – uh, Again, I think, you know, at that first meeting, I think if you can cover all those sorts of things, um, you're going to have a very, very, very good chance of getting the project off to a very clear and, um, you know, linear path. And what should a client uh, or, a, you know, a potential client, they've come, they've met with you, they've talked through all of those ideas. Mm. What should they then expect happens then? Well, they haven't said yes yeah, yet, but yeah. what should they expect should happen what, then? What we do is, um, and collaboratively with them, is we write, uh, in our case, which is called the cost guide. I mean, um, you know, for, um, might be called a reverse brief in a you know, in another context, um, which lays out the entire mud map of the project in terms of cost, in terms of fees, in terms of making allowance for town planning, civil engineering, soil testing, um, surveying, um, you know, building approvals. Um, if you're in New South Wales, there are a whole host of additional consultant inputs. It's not uncommon to have um, uh, botanical input or yes. horticultural yep. input, um, landscape architect, um, bushfire, um, basics um, in terms of energy assessments. Um, so you've got to allow all of those things because, you know, once again, people very – they focus on construction cost, but then you've got whole of project cost. Um, having a conversation with clients about landscape and People would be forgiven for thinking, oh, landscape, you throw some grass down, you'll be right. But landscaping is con- is a considerable cost to do well, particularly if people have you know aspirations for beautiful gardens and things like that, curtains and blinds, um, all of those sorts of things. So we, we, we prepare a reverse brief that um, really well and truly will um, you know paint a picture of what the clients are going to get into. And with that brief... We give them an outline in terms of time frame and just broadly a sort of mud map for the process running forward. So, you know, we'll talk about the time to design, hold points for approvals, time to document, hold points for tendering, uh, contractual uh, sort of wrap up, and then construction time so that they can look at, once again, the end 
game, not the beginning. You know, yep. um, frequently, um, if, and if I can take this opportunity to dispel the myth, I mean, we hear that people think we've got four-year waiting periods and things like that, which um, is a novel idea. I wouldn't mind that. Um, but uh, over, overwhelmingly, I mean, yes, we would be busy, but, you know, we start any job within you know, a month or two of getting the commission. But the reality is is that, like, a, a high-end job takes, you know, could take six to eight months to document and get approval and tendering and all those sorts of things. And then uh, as a guide, we, we would say to people that roughly $100,000 a month is as quickly as a builder will build up until about $1.5 million. Okay. So you build a $1.5 million house, take you 15 months. You build a million-dollar house, That's a really good guide. A so that was $100,000 a month? $100,000 a month up until $1.5 million. Yep, okay. And then beyond $1.5 million, the gearing changes. So a $2 million house might take 18 months. So does that uh, mean a five hundred thousand dollar house would take five months? We, we would say be, below a million dollars, probably eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. So okay. a five hundred thousand dollar job might take six or seven months yep. by our, our maths. And you know, one one of the tests again on this idea of sort of you know deferring to statistics. Um, every job that we do overwhelmingly is on time or ahead of time. Yep. You know, kind of under promise, over deliver. Yeah, that's really the way we try and manage things because at the end of the day, you're managing clients' expectations. And it's and they're a, managing their lifestyles. And they're managing yeah. their lifestyles. So, yeah. you know, um, give them information that supports them. You know, yeah. be conservative. Don't yeah. be overly ambitious. And then if you over-deliver on everything, well, it makes you look good for one thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone wants to look good. and um, But it keeps clients happy. Yes. You know, it just gives them room to move, gives you room to move, gives the builder the time to finish the job properly. Yeah. And everyone gets what they want. Yeah. No, well, I um, I I I think that that's what you've just outlined in terms of what you you give the client after that or the potential client after that meeting is just, it's you can see how detailed that information is and the importance of understanding all of the costs. Yeah. Because so often people get their design fee and then they get their construction cost and they forget that there's so many other costs that are going to come along the way. Nobody's informed them. They come as nasty surprises they haven't budgeted for. That then has to get pulled off the construction cost. And uh, so it's really worthwhile that you do at the very outset map all of those things out. So then you can juggle your construction costs as you need to and understand the whole time frame. I know that the last workshop that I ran in Sydney, one of the first things that I, I said to the people there was that, look, this is a process that can sometimes, particularly in Sydney, mm. take anywhere between two, three years, sometimes Absolutely. longer. Because yeah. particularly because the town planning in Sydney mm. can be quite onerous. And uh, and I just watched this man who had been brought by his wife just look totally deflated in the front row. And I caught up with him afterwards and said, are you okay? You know, and he said, oh, um, and his wife laughed and she said, I've been telling him it's going to take that long. And he's been saying, no, 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 it doesn't. And I said, well, sure, if you wanted to go out, pick out a project home, you know, on a brand new site mm. and build that, no, it wouldn't take that long. But if you want to be involved in the design, you want to steer the design, yeah. you want to see that through as a one-off version Make sure that you're finding the right people to work with, getting the price right, all of that, you know, and then there's, of course, all of your approvals and processes yeah. that, and then construction, that does take longer. So I, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I would certainly, picking up picking up on your point, one of the things I would strongly encourage people to do when they're building is that, I mean, ask lots of people, you know, information. I mean, I think, you know, get opinions from everybody about these things. But try and just try and get some context of where the decisions are coming from, you know. Try and ask commensurate builders that have a track record in what it is that you want to do about time and cost and all those sorts of things. Then go and ask two or three architects, you know, go and ask 
people that built the homes or whatever, and really interrogate what those things included, what they didn't include, how long it took, et cetera, et cetera. Very quickly, you'll start to narrow the range yeah, you'll see patterns. That, you'll see you? patterns. Yeah. You'll see patterns, and you know, just on the construction cost and construction time thing. Um, I mean, we—I'm touching timber at this table in front of me now. <laughs> um, we, we've been in, incredibly accurate with time in these things because, again, we look at having done seventy-five projects in the last eight years. We look if one of our builders takes statistically takes a hundred thousand dollars to build a job a month. And a builder comes along and tells us that they can build three hundred thousand dollars worth of work a month, and you know it's a one one and a half million dollar job. You need to be insane to believe that person because you go there's no science in the world that supports those things. So sometimes I think the mistake is made by clients and architects that in the desire to kind of find information that tells them what they want to hear, they ignore the real information. They simply keep asking till they get somebody who tells them the answer that they want to hear. Mm. And what we would say is that there is no such thing as a good price in building. There's only the right price. Mm -hmm. Because if you are specific about the information and the schedule and the level of specification and the inclusion and the detail, once again, using my analogy about the brick earlier, it doesn't matter how fantastic the builder is, the same door and window will cost the same amount of money. The same mm. tile will cost the same amount of money. So then as you drill down, down into it, you realize the variables that a builder can control become their margin, their labor, you know, a handful of preliminaries and stuff. But almost every other component of the build is a subcontract, mm. which if you're specific about the information will overwhelmingly be the same subcontract. Mm. So, you know, whether it's time... By subcontract, it's... you mean that they'll have to hire somebody else Correct. to do it and they'll Correct. be dictated by what their rates are. Correct. Yeah. So, so you know, if, if you go out to tender and you go to tender with four people and three of them tell you your house is going to cost a million, somebody costs, tells you it's going to cost 700000 that's not a good price. That's a builder that doesn't understand the drawings or has missed something or is going to go broke. Yeah. Like they, it's simply not possible to have that bigger gap yep. in residential work. Yeah. And I think um, whether it's engaging an architect, whether it's the costs of construction, whether it's time, um, these are the things that will cause stress in a project if they're not done right. It doesn't matter how much money a person has. It doesn't matter how much time they have. If expectations are not managed uh, the clients or the architects, or whatever, in the fullness of time, there will be stress in the project, yeah. and that's certainly where we would encourage people to try and spend time and energy to avoid. Yeah. So, Sean, in terms of getting the best from actually working with an architect and creating a really great working relationship, what would you recommend? I, I'm a, um, you know, picking up on this idea of uh, trust and, um, you know, support, you know, both, both from architect to client and vice versa. I think one of the somewhat intangible things that increasingly becomes important is this line in the sand between, you know, what does the architect do? You know, how much information does the client give us? How much do we question, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for us, when I look over the history of the projects that we've done, recognizing that every client has a different personality and a different capacity to do different things and want to be engaged with different things, I think the best projects, in my opinion, is, is are not where the client just gives everything over to the architect. Where they go, oh, just do whatever you want. I mean, clearly, you know, <laughs> an architect needs boundaries just like a client needs boundaries. You yeah. know, the constraints are ultimately the thing that informs good decision making and robust decision making. A project without constraints is the scariest thing in the world. And yeah. trust me, I've done a few of them. Yeah. Um, what what I th believe is very important is that I think. A great client will often come to you with a very clear understanding about things that are important to them, 
but then remain open to the fact that you might wish to challenge all of those things, that you might have ways of thinking about using space, designing space, material, et cetera, et cetera, that really will take them to a place that they didn't even know existed. And I think when you have people that choose to micromanage every decision you make or how you make it or they have very, very fixed ideas about what it is that they want, um, you can clearly still design a beautiful home. They may have fantastic ideas and have fantastic um, you know, thoughts about what they want to achieve and stuff like that. But getting back to this idea that a house is more than just the sum of all of the parts is that I think if the experience and the process of designing a home is one of transparency, of letting go, of um, sort of getting rid of preconception both by the client and the architect, because the architect might have preconceptions about the client. We need to let go as much as the clients need to let go. And there's a coming together of minds in such a way that as opposed to the architect sort of bestowing this you know, idea of greatness on the client or... <laughs> No, the, the, um, Sitting from yeah, on high. Yeah, you know, <laughs> pulling back the velvet curtain and doing this great reveal. Um, you know, what we encourage the, the, in the process is really a, a robust collaboration, exploring of ideas and yeah. talking a lot about cause and effect. And, you know, we, we were quite often in the idea of, I mean, just if it, we're talking about an outdoor room, we might talk about why an outdoor room is to the side of a living space rather than the front of a living space that one might allow all those spaces to get north sun or uninterrupted view or whatever so that it's not just the kind of pragmatic stuff but it's all the kind of prosaic or the poetic stuff that we're trying to reconcile as well and the only way you get a different outcome is to do something different you know clearly if you do what is predictable is what if, what is asked of you then you'll get exactly what you ask for but sometimes the best thing is what nobody's thought of yeah and um we continue to um be amazed, humbled, um, excited, challenged by clients that come to us with a range of wonderful ideas but re but remain open to other ideas. Yeah. And e even as early as this morning, I mean, we had a site meeting, a project in New Farm where the most extraordinary clients well into construction, just embracing the building process and the making process in such a way that every single time we go to site – project gets better. Yeah. It just gets better and better and better, you know, yeah. and it's not just because they're spending more money. At times they do. A lot of the times we just make different decisions that are, mm -hmm. have no cost impact. But because they've, they trust us, because they trust the builder, every discussion is without judgment. It's yeah. without fear. It's without ego. Yeah, um, they're not looking to be ripped off. They're yeah. not trying to avoid that, are they? They've got to a point where it is. It's that, that word collaboration. I think people who haven't experienced it potentially have trouble picturing what that actually looks like in a, a working relationship. And I've Absolutely. explained to yeah. um, people, you know, I know where my clients keep their underwear. So yeah. it's a really intimate relationship Absolutely. and a huge privilege as an architect to be trusted with taking somebody's investment, financial investment, plus their aspirations, hopes, dreams for their, not just their future home, but the lifestyle that they see it will actually help them lead, yeah. where they'll be making memories with their family, where they'll be celebrating Christmases. Like the fact that we we are part of that process. It's is extraordinary. An, it's in a huge honour. Yeah, it's it, so, no, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 46 now, and one of the things that continues to motivate me and um, where a huge amount of my passion um, comes from and uh, where my passion is sustained is the quality of that relationship. Um, you know, we, we've been privileged enough to build 18, I think it's 18 
repeat clients' homes. Wow. In in one instance, I've actually been lucky enough to build a house for a grandparent, the parent, and the child. Oh, that's Three generations of family. Yep. Um, and it's just extraordinary to be a part of that process. Mm. I mean, it never fails to amaze me. You know, when you get to the end of a project and our experience of getting to the end of a project are clients giving us a hug and kissing the cheek and a bottle of champagne and a lot of laughs. Yeah. Um, and... That's really what we're hoping for people. Everyone can decide for themselves what is the most beautiful home or the right home for them or wrong home or expensive home, cheap home. But it's hard to argue with people getting to the end of a process and going, this has been the most wonderful thing that we've done. And we're certainly, I mean, while that's what we aspire to, I think there are plenty of good architects, building designers, um, uh, you know, draftspeople that would have had that same experience with a client. I think um, we are spoiled for choice and certainly in southeast Queensland, north, uh, northern New South Wales, with a range of wonderful people in the design industry that care um, equally to us and you know do phenomenal phenomenal work and I just encourage clients just do your homework yeah. you know um, it's such a big responsibility that you're giving to somebody just make sure you're giving it to somebody who deserves it and yeah. somebody who um, appreciates it and somebody who is um, you know, humbled by that opportunity to be engaged that intimately and that personally in your life. I mean, it's just something that is so extraordinary and so unique to building in residential architecture that is, um, you know, it's sort of not there in a lot of commercial work or, you know, perhaps an in institutional work where your client's just one step removed. And um, it's a it's a thing of absolute joy when you get it right. Well, I actually think that's a perfect place to finish our chat. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I oh, love spending time. So. <laughs> no, I'm <Yep>. talking to <laughs> not you. <laughs> no, you listener. I hope that you've in uh, a UA community. I hope that you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I I love spending time with Sean. And as I said in the um, introduction, you know, Sean and I have known each other for a very long time, and I have watched from the sidelines um, as his career has gone from strength to strength, knowing how hard he has worked to make this all happen. And I. I think uh, for all of you there, there's some incredibly useful pieces of uh, information. There's lots of pearls to take away from that. And um, I really encourage you to listen back over. Sean got through so much ground then uh, in terms of helping you understand the process of working with an architect and how to actually... You know, you can see the passion with which Sean talks about his work. And as I said earlier, this is what you should expect from the people that you're trusting to help you create your home, new home or your renovation. This is, um, you know, this is the gold standard and really uh, what you can seek from those that you're working with. They, they, there are people like Sean out there at all budget levels of the industry, um, building designers and, and architects. And it's, as Sean said, it's a case of doing your homework and finding the right person for you that you can trust and collaborate with to really bring um bring your home dreams to life. So thank you so much, Sean, for your time. It's very generous of you. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Amelia. And, um, you know, this is a fantastic thing that you're doing. I really, it's fantastic to be able to kind of share these ideas. And I really hope that for people listening that they can um, hopefully have learned something from today and just try to get an insight into not only just the pragmatics, but into the passion and the joy and the optimism that you should feel in wanting to do this. And it doesn't matter whether it's a post box it doesn't matter whether it's the world's biggest renovation. Um, ironically, some of our most highly acclaimed work have been the lowest budget, smallest projects we've ever done. And the passion and the intensity and the effort that should go into something small, something big, it should be no different. Um, we, we don't distinguish 
the quality of home by the budget. The quality of everything that we do is equal. It's simply the degree of embellishment or the size that might vary. But um, thank you very much to all of you that uh, listened and hope it's been really helpful. (laughs) Thanks, Sean. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Sean and Sean Lockyer Architects, make sure you head to the show notes in iTunes. I'll have links to his website and his social pages there so that you can see more of his work, you can get inspired, and you can also get in touch with him if you want to. Now, if you're planning on using an architect, be sure to check that your chosen professional is actually an architect, that they're registered with their state board of architects. I'll pop a link in the show notes to a blog that tells you how to test this and look because they have to be registered with their local board Uh, in order to be able to legally refer to themselves as an architect or to provide architectural design. So as I said, there'll be links in the show notes about how you can search the registers. Um, There's also some information on the legal side of working with an architect. They're required to practice under a legislated code of conduct that actually operates at a government level. So I'll pop a link in the show notes for some more information about the obligations, the practice requirements, so that you can really understand more if you're planning on working with an architect so that you're really covered. Homeowners will often get confused about the difference between a building designer and an architect and who to use. And it's a bit contentious in the industry, as I said in my interview with Sean. You know, you'll get architects saying we want we went to university for longer, and you'll get building designers saying we can do anything an architect can do. And both of those statements are true. But I've always felt that the differences run deeper than that. And certainly Sean touched on some of that. And if you're keen to know more, I've got a uh, blog that I've written about this topic. So I'll pop a link to that in the show notes as well. Now, as we've said in this interview, let me be very clear, as with every industry, there are architects and building designers that are amazing at what they do. And there are those that aren't and they still get clients and they still build projects. All right. Undercover Architect isn't about telling you who you should use. It's about helping you find the best fit for you in an informed way so that you can get a great outcome for your home. And so to give you a balanced view, in the next episode, I'll be interviewing Aaron Wales from Aaron Wales Building Design. He's a building designer, so join me then. Now, before I go, remember that our season four podcast partner is Colourbond Steel and their mat range. So the Colourbond Steel mat range has this amazing way of diffusing the light. So it actually creates a soft, natural look. And there's some tech behind this. Okay, so let me share. Now, there are two kinds of light reflection. One is actually called specular reflection and the other is called diffuse reflection. So specular reflection occurs when light is reflected in a concentrated mirror-like matter. So think about when light hits a mirrored surface, be it an actual mirror or something that's shiny. You can actually see the light source on the surface as it reflects it. Now, diffuse reflection, by contrast, is scattered and it's unfocused in how it reflects the light. So you can't actually see the light source on the material when you're getting the reflection. So, you know, and Colourbond Steel Matte uses an innovative paint technology which is designed to diffuse light reflection. So this then naturally achieves a softer, more subtle matte finish. And this is actually a true matte and it's stunning. You know, I I just... I can't I can't tell you enough how gorgeous this finish is all right so you can request your own samples by heading to the website so that you can see for yourself and it's a great way to test out how it will look in your project. I always recommend that you actually get samples of anything that you're considering and that you examine it in the natural light on your site. So don't just stand and look at it inside, actually take it outside, hold it up in different times of the day and see how it's handling the light on your site because 
that's really the only way to be sure that you're making the best choice for your project. So getting the samples of the Colourbond map range is a great way for you to be able to see this for your renovation or building project. So head to www.colourbond.com forward slash undercover architect and Colourbond is C-O-L-O-R, okay? And there you can request some samples and see for yourself. Thank you for tuning in to the Get It Right podcast with Undercover Architect. Now, if you head to the Undercover Architect website, you'll see loads more helpful information on how to get it right when designing, building or renovating your home simply and with confidence. Not only can you see all the podcast episodes there, there's also a wealth of written blogs and videos too covering all sorts of topics. And there's other ways as well that Undercover Architect can give you more support and guidance for your project. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please subscribe so that you always get notified of new episodes as soon as they go live. And I'd love it too if you could please leave a review. (laughs) I know that iTunes doesn't make it easy to leave a review, but when you do, this is super helpful in spreading the word that this podcast exists to others who really need to hear it to get help with planning their future homes. This has been Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. Thank you for listening and for letting me be your secret ally. Looking forward to next time. Bye.